You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 712. It's not about selling. It's about creating value for your audience. Jerry Aloka. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Dave Bullis. My next guest is a filmmaker and stuntman. He began his career in 2014, just directing, with his debut of the horror film Delirium, which is actually coming out uh, the beginning of next year, by the way, which is be January 2018. Um, he went on to direct two other films, Vengeance, A Love Story, starring Nicolas Cage and Don Johnson, and Hangman, which is the film we're going to talk about today, a lot about today, starring Al Pacino, Carl Urban, and Brittany Snow. We also talk a lot about doing stunts, because he was in a really cool movie called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. With guest, Johnny Martin. And, and I really appreciate that, too. You know, we have a mutual friend in, uh, in Mr. Kehoe, and, uh, you know, is, is it just me, Johnny, or does Michael Kehoe know everybody? Michael Keogh not only knows her, he knows people he doesn't even know yet. (laughs) 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 Yeah, uh, it's it's always seems like Mike is always knows somebody else. He's always, you know, I I see him talking to somebody else or 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 just you know mentioning somebody else. I'm like, my God, this man must not sleep. He must just (laughs) he must just either either call or go to networking parties or just you know he 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 has his finger on the button. Like he he has it all working together. Uh, Well, well, I've known him for a long, long time, probably over eighteen, twenty years. And back then, you know, he always talked about directing and doing all these movies. And I just thought, well, he's craft service, really? And I was always told today's craft service is tomorrow's director. And sure enough, this man pulled it off. He's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he definitely did. And, uh, you know, and speaking about, you know, today's craft services, tomorrow's director, you know, there's a lot of ways to get into the film industry. I mean, you know, everyone I've had on here has a unique story. So I wanted to ask Johnny, how did you break into the film industry? Well, it's such a great story, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. And basically, when I was seven years old, I used to go to car washes all the time because when I grew up, it was like the 70s, and they always had the hot rods coming into the car washes, and I was a huge car fan. And so one day, all of a sudden, this car pulls up with a, a trailer behind it with a smashed-up car, and this guy steps out, and he, he looked like Burt Reynolds coming out of this car. He just was an amazing man. I had to ride ride my bike up to him and ask him, you know, what happened, you know, what happened to your car? And he goes, this isn't a car. Her name's Eleanor. He goes, uh, Eleanor, meet. And he asked by my name. And I told him, he goes, yeah, Eleanor's a star in my movie called Gone in 60 Seconds. And I'm the director, producer, stuntman, actor, writer. And I'm out there uh, delivering my movie to all the theaters and uh, self-distribute this film. And, and I said, I don't understand that. So, he, so we sat for like two hours and he explained everything to me. At the end of the conversation, I said, I want to do what you do. And he says, well, look, if you go home and study and train, you can come see me when you're 18 and I will help you out. So sure enough, that day I went home and I started training. I started training out to be a stuntman and, and act. I took acting classes. And when, when I turned 18, sure enough, I got in that car, went to L.A., called my mom to tell her I was I was uh, there. And she said, honey, I got bad news for you. H.B. Halicki, uh, he died today doing the movie Gone in 60 Seconds Part 2. 
And so I went there, I was left alone, not knowing what to do. So I worked my butt off and 10 years later, I got asked to stunt coordinate and design all the action for an upcoming Jerry Brookheimer movie where I was starting to get out of that part of it in my life and starting to only direct and produce. And I said, well, what's the name of the movie? And uh, they said, well, it's gone in 60 seconds. And so it was just this amazing turnaround. It was like HB was still taking care of me. And um, I ended up winning an award for best coordination of the year. So it was really a thrill. You know, that that's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely amazing, Johnny, where you got to actually be a part of the movie that you started with. And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that, that's amazing. And, uh, so, cause I mean, you did a lot of, of, of different stunts and I, and I looked at your IMDB and I, I, there's one movie, Johnny, I have to ask about, and you did stunts for killer clowns from outer space. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, you don't understand. I did the Titanic. I've done the matrices. I've done the terminators. I've done tons of huge movies, but the number one question everyone asked me, you were in Killer Clowns. <laughs> it's so funny. That little cult movie was one of my first films that I acted and did stunts, and I played three of the clowns, and I did everything on that show, and it ended up becoming my most memorable movie. You know, I keep getting gifts from all over and autographs signed for that movie, too. It's just crazy. Yeah, you know, one day I, I was uh, I was at like a, a Big Lots. I don't know if you go, Big Lots is kind of like this uh, big box uh, discount store, and uh, I was there. Yeah. And they have this. They have these. They have a movie section, and I found Killer Clowns there one day. And I said, "Yo, I remember this movie as a kid." <laughs> so I, I take it up to the register, right, and I'm checking out, and the girl scanning was you know scanning the DVDs and buying, and she stops on Killer Clowns, and she goes. Oh my God! She goes. I remember this movie, and she goes. To, she starts telling everyone around her. She goes, "Have you ever seen this movie?" She goes, "It is freaking awesome." She goes, it, "It's about these clowns who come in from outer space, and they and they're they're turning people into these cotton candy cocoons." And everyone now is like getting around her, looking at this DVD case of killer clowns, and they're like, "Oh my God! Is there more copies back there?" Uh, oh my God! This this looks awesome. And I'm like, "Yeah, it's this it's this fun movie that that just came out of nowhere." And I remember seeing. As a as a kid growing up, and I and now I, and I, by the way, I have another copy. You can't see it because it's on a podcast, but I, I have a copy uh, on my bookshelf. Uh, that's great. Well, I'm in talks with the Kyoto Brothers to see if I could produce uh, the part the part two of that. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I, I think like part two would be absolutely awesome. I, I think movies, especially movies like that, I think now are are, are more prevalent than ever. Because I, I mean, I know, you know, I, I'm starting to get the superhero fatigue, and I'm starting to, you know what I mean. I, and I, and I know uh, people who work on those movies, and I, and I want to support them, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I, I'm way more interested in seeing like a Coen Brothers movie, you know what I mean, or something like that, where it's like this, this fun movie, um, you know, or something, even something like, you know, uh, uh, something else that has come out recently that that just blew me away was uh, Three Billboards. Have you seen that yet? No, I have. Oh, okay. yeah, it's it's fantastic. But um, I'm sorry, I'm getting off track now, Johnny. But um, but, uh, oh, okay. yeah, but uh, yeah, I love it. But uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, you know that's why I think movies like that, you know, it, it just it, it see it, it stays in that zeitgeist because it's such a fun movie. And and you know you mentioned doing uh, uh, stunts for Titanic too. I I, I promise, Johnny, I was going to mention that too because I saw you did uh, you know I saw Titanic on your IMDb and I I said you know I'll ask about you know Titanic then then, then Killer Clowns, but I. I <laughs> So, 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 I mean, so Johnny, just the, you know, as we talk about stunts and everything, you know, there, there's been like guys like Jason Statham, uh, who've, who've mentioned that, you know, stunt guys should get their own uh, category at the Academy Awards because, you know, they do a lot of dangerous work. They do a lot of different, you know, the, the car flips, the, the brick jumping through the glass, all that, all that stuff, you know, all that, all that dangerous work, you know, so, you know, as a stunt guy yourself, you know, what are your, what are your thoughts about the stunt, stunt guys getting their own category in the Academy Awards? Well, um, I agree and disagree with it. And the part I agree with is that, yeah, you know, the, the number one genre that makes the most money in the film industry is action movies. So it is, uh, it is all of us out there that at least what I was. And, but the, the other point of it too, is that, you know, you have to declare who is a filmmaker and to me uh, to be nominated for Academy Award, you have to be a true filmmaker. And there are a lot of some people that are, are not filmmakers. They are just guys that like to get hit by cars and like to crash up and wreck things and all that. But then there's those great uh, second unit directors and stunt corners out there that know how to design amazing action that helps drive not only the story, but the characters uh, as well. I mean, there's nothing better than seeing a great, a great action. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
And now back to the show. That helps to uh, tell you who this character truly is and, and what he's feeling without having to say it. And that's, to me, very rare to see. Like the Born Identity movies, to me, I'm very impressed by because they, uh, you know, the action is really only 20%. The rest is all the acting of Matt Damon. And, and you see what he's reacting to. And, and it's so believable. Where then you jump into Fast and Furious, which I think is... Uh, you know, amazing stunt work and all that, but it's, and designed very great. But that, my issue is that, you know, does it, is there a character in that car or is it the car that's being the hero? And that's to me, the point that if they do do this, they have to make it clear that it should go to a filmmaker, not because someone made 500 million in the box office on a great action movie. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. And you know, because you know, sometimes in, in the in movies like Fast and the Furious, you know, the the sort of the, the car itself, the muscle cars, the the exotics, they're they're like the the sort of center of attention in a lot of those action set pieces. Yeah, and that's not what the story is about. It's not about the car. It's about who's driving the car and where and where they're going. Yeah, and, and, and you know that that'd be funny if it actually like turned into something like Transformers, where it's kind of like the same thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But so, so as you as you took your career, Johnny, you know, as you got to, you know to do more and more stunts, you started producing, and um, you know, again, as we were talking, you know, it's always interesting to see the trajectory of careers. So as you go from stunts to producing, how did you make that that sort of transition from one to the other? Well, I mean, the whole reason why I got into stunts, I happened to be really good at it, so I was fortunate to stay in it for as long as I did, probably longer than I wanted to stay, but. But I wanted to learn from some of the top directors. What better way of getting behind Tony Scott and James Cameron than to get on the set as a stuntman and stay on for a few weeks instead of just trying to sneak on? So that was mainly my main main idea. Then when I started to watch it, I realized how much money is being overspent when people are just trying to spend money. And when you look at studio movies, you look at it where they're spending $800 million. Well, really, only... 50 million got put in the movie. The rest are executive charges, studio charges and all that. So movies aren't really a hundred million. I'm like, well, why can't you make, you know, and I started seeing the decline of, of, of video and, and, and uh, blockbusters and all that. And I'm like, well, where is the recoupment going to come from? Well, we have to start making movies for less. And sure enough, that's what started happening. And so when I started uh, deciding that I wanted to produce, I knew that I knew how to shoot action. And I knew how to do it quickly and that was the most expensive part of, of making action movies is the action. So um, I went to Millennium Films, Avi Lerner, and I told him, well, how much do you do your sci-fi movies for? And he says, 1.8 million. I said, and you shoot it where? And he goes, in Bulgaria? I said, well, what if I tell you I could shoot uh, one of your sci-fi movies the same style, same way for 300,000 and I'll shoot it in LA? He said, it's impossible. And so I had my actors, Casper Van Dien and Michael Rooker, call up Avi and say, I think he could do it. I really believe in him. And sure enough, we have pulled it off for 310000 and the movie became Sci-Fi Film of the Year. And then I did another one, and I said, can I have the 1.5? And he said, no, I'll give you 700 because he wanted to test me. And sure enough, I did that one for 700 and that became Sci-Fi Movie of the Year the following year. And then Avi started giving me more and more films to produce after that. So it was more or less knowing, and I, through my career, I've always wanted to learn every department. I thought, learning from this man, H.B. Alicky, that I met when I was seven years old, the key to becoming a great filmmaker is to learn everyone's job. I learned how to do special effects. I learned how to do visual effects. I learned every single career. When I, when I had a day off, I'd go spend it with some, some of my buddies that did another career than I did. And I tried to learn it so I could become the ultimate filmmaker. And that's where I thought producing would be very, very good for me. And it's paid off very well for me. Uh, as far as my career, I got to be the first company to travel to China and to co co-produce a movie with China Film Group um, about five years ago, in 2013, called Urban Games, and uh, I got to show them how you could pull off a movie where they thought they needed 18 million. Uh, I did it for seven and a half for them, so it worked out really well. They wanted me to stay there, and I just couldn't stay in China. <laughs> I wanted to come back home and and, and do some real movies. <laughs> so. Well, if you did stay in China, just just sort of playing like a what if game, Johnny, if you did stay in China, do you think that, that they would have just been coming up to you with like, you know, project after project and just saying, hey, Johnny, could you, you know, produce this film and produce this film in Beijing and then go to to, to like, you know, to, to Szechuan and do this film? Yeah, I was asked to go to Canada. Uh, you know, in my, my movie, we went to uh, Seoul. Korea and, and to Beijing. And the problem I had with it, it's similar to TV in China, where um, the producer 
isn't the filmmaker. It's really the director. And in TV, it's the, the writer who is the producer. And so it became something where I'm a creative producer and I'm not the kind of producer that just needs to push num numbers around and get things done at a certain price. I want to be a part of the filmmaking experience and to help scenes get better. And when I went to China, it was more that I had these ideas, but the director got to override me where in my films here as a producer, I got to say what I wanted and felt that you need to shoot this no matter what. And I got it done. And so that's why I, I really didn't want to stay in China for very much longer because I didn't want to just be a guy that, that did the numbers. I wasn't that I was built to make movies, not to just help create movies by money. Yeah, and and I I think that's very, uh, uh very virtuous of you, Johnny, because you you realize you want to stay true to yourself. You know, you don't want to just sit there and, uh, you know, you want to make your own movies. You don't want to make other people's movies. Exactly. So, uh, by the way, you know, uh, I I ever I I don't know if you do you know Peter Marshall. Uh, name sounds familiar. He, he he's like a uh, he, I, he does a lot of first AD work. He's worked a lot with John Woo, but he actually was in China, uh, for a while doing different movies and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, uh, I just I just wanted to ask if you knew him, just in case you two ever cross cross paths. It very well might be that I do know because I've done a few John Woo movies, so. Yeah, he, and he's a, he's a real good guy too, and so. Uh, but yeah, if if you don't though, if you don't know him though, Johnny, let me know and I'll introduce you to. You got it. Sounds great. So, uh, so as, so as you sort of you know got better at producing, you you know you're able to sort of you know do, do different things with money. Um, you know, was your was your budget sort of rising incrementally, or did you ever find yourself, Johnny, like somebody would say, "Oh no, look, Johnny, we're only going to give you, you know, five hundred thousand or a million. And then when you make the, and when you went to make the, your second, third, and fourth, they were the, you know, they just kept it at that same point where it was like, Johnny, we're only going to give you fifty million or uh, five hundred thousand or a million. Or did they, or did they allow you to, or did you were able to get it to go up incrementally? Well, I, after I did those two two sci-fi movies, that's when Avi asked me to do a third, and I said, no, I want to step up to a, a budget where I could actually make a film that I believe in, not just having to put it together and do whatever I could for the money. Uh, so I, you know, immediately there, I jumped up to the five to seven million dollar range, and I did uh, three or four Cuba Gooding Jr. movies that he starred in. It was just right when Wesley Snipes went to jail, and Cuba was right there to fill in for the next great action hero where I was hoping to try to get these dramas and rewrite them into, you know, action pieces, but not action movies where, you know, it would help Cuba because I'm a real big fan of Cuba Gooding. And I just wanted to see him just raise his career up by not being sold out as an action star, but being uh, an action quality actor. Um, and so that's what I started to do. And I found a, a niche in that spot. And that's where I realized that if you have like 2.1 to 2.5 below the line, that's where most mo movies today are being made. Everyone gets caught up in numbers and they think that, you know, I got $11 million budget. I guarantee that $11 million budget still has a below the line to make the movie around 2.1 to 2.9. And, you know, just because it fluctuates, I've done movies for 7 million to 9 million to 12 million to 13 million. And yet the below the line is still around 3 million or less. Uh, that doesn't change because, you know, you know, today's movies, because there is no payoff in, in, uh, in, in VOD uh, and Blockbuster, I, I mean, excuse me, and Netflix isn't buying as much as, as we thought they would. And China stopped buying altogether. You know, it really makes it hard for anyone to recoup. So I was lucky that I found that niche because right when I started really getting further and further into it, that's when I realized that all the movies have to be made for that unless they're sequels or they're a Marvel comic, you know, all the rest of the movies are still being done at this level. And the problem is a lot of the studio guys don't know how to do movies at this price. Uh, you know, they don't know about sales. That's where Avi Lerner taught me, you know, what each country buys films for, what every actor is worth and how much you have to make movies. His goal all along was always make a movie for what you could pre-sell this movie, lower it by a million dollars. And then you can make that movie for that and know that you always have a million dollar profit. And no matter what the movie is, you have to have a great producer. You have to figure out how to do that movie for the money that's going to make the company money. So that, that's that, what I learned. And so now, basically, I'm still doing the same. I mean, my movie's 11 million, but yet still below the lines are still under three. And, and that's a great bit of advice, by the way, Johnny. I really like that uh, that advice because uh, you know just how how it ties in uh, as well. You know, just with the with just this podcast, you know, I've had um, filmmakers on who've done their first movie, their second movies, their third movies, uh, and some of them have made uh, a comedy as their first movie. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And and one of the things that we talked about on here, they said, Dave, it's whenever we go to like foreign sales agents or we go to do VOD or to any of these like aggregators, like, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's tons of them out there. But if they go to any of them, they always say, well, who's in it? And they go, well, you know, it's it's nobody. Well, they say, well, you can't really sell a comedy as your first movie with a lot of unknown actors and expect it to get a wide release. So they always said, you know, go out and make a horror movie instead. Uh, what do you think about that advice? So John, just to make a horror movie as your first movie. Well, I think that you, the advice that that person said is even worse than what we all thought today. I mean, <laughs> nowadays, you know, 80, 80% of the movies that are being made are being made by independent, not studios. Studios just buy our movies, throw their name on it. And now everyone thinks I got a Lionsgate movie. It's like, no, I did it through Patriot Pictures. And then they just bought it at the end for 2.7 or 2.8. But now it looks like it was a Lionsgate movie. So knowing that, yeah, I mean, we can't even sell movies. And since we're in the independent world, we're not fortunate to do movies without cast. I mean, that we can't even sell it and get our domestic out of it. So we have to have a cast. Right? If you try to make a movie without an actor and you think you got gold, well, guess what? It's probably going to end up sitting on a shelf or it's going to be sold to a distributor that, that will prove that you never made a dime when he made all the money. So you should never, ever try to do that. Horror movies, it's very tricky. It's like a good example is what happened to me is that I need to show everyone I could direct. Everyone knew I could produce. Everyone knew I could do action, direct action, but they didn't know if I could direct a film with actors. So I went ahead and wrote a, a movie about my uh, friends that I grew up with that we used to go to the scary house when we were kids and we had this, you know, hell gang. And we, I created the story around it and I shot at the original house that we used to sneak in at night and I made it found footage because found footage was dead. Well, I started getting the news from everyone that found footage was going to die sooner or later. So I had to rush and get this movie into editing and, and post and clean it up and get it ready. And by the time that I was ready to sell it, I missed the window by about a month. Everyone said found footage is too many people did it because it's cheap to do. So you know what? We're done with it. So now they're done with it. So what am I going to do with this movie now? Well, I went back, I rewrote it and I borrowed another 50,000 and I changed it into a mix of found footage and real footage, a real film. And now that movie's done very well for me. I was very, very lucky. I did it with kid actors from Disney Channel and all that where, you know, you could get them at scale. And at least they're, they're, they're not known names, but at least they have a resume that you could at least put on a po poster. And that's what I suggest you doing. You know, if worse comes to worse and you can't afford an actor or can't get an actor, you know, always turn to a TV star because at least they got some kind of clout to them. Yeah, and with with TV being so prevalent nowadays, you know, there's a lot more you know TV stars out there because you know uh, on Netflix alone, there's like what 300 shows, 300 episodic shows now. Um, but uh, you know, there's yeah. A lot, yeah, there's no, but there's a lot of you know Amazon, uh, and the, you have your cable package, and then you have you know, uh, Netflix and on and all the other channels. You know, there's a lot of episodic content up there now. Yeah, well, and the problem with all this is that. Uh, 10 years ago, Blockbuster would hold on to your movie forever. I mean, you, here you could go in there and get a movie t from 20 years ago. Nowadays, where do you go other than the number one distributor in the world? And that's Walmart. Walmart, believe it or not, is the number one distributor because they hold on to your movies for years and years. And they put in that $5 bucket. And if you could be thrown in that $5 bucket, you're the luckiest producer in the world because that's where the money's to be had because they could keep it in that bucket for three years where Netflix is lucky to hold on. If you get into Netflix, could hold on your movie for only three months. Redbox, you're lucky to be in it for a month. So there's nowhere that has a, a lasting uh, a way of selling your movie other than Walmart right now. And that's a very good point, Johnny. You know, I'm, I was at uh, one time I was actually at a, a film producer sort of seminar, and they also talked about you know what the cost of, of shelf space is. So if you walked into a Target, a Best Buy, a Walmart, and, and you start looking around the movie section, you know each time the cover is is horizontally versus vertically. You know what I mean? Like the cover's facing out towards you, and you can see it. Versus if you just see the spine. You know, there's a huge cost difference between those two because it's it's about shelf space, and you know they have the you know what eye level everyone goes to first. They have they were talking about all that stuff, and you know it, it, it now you now you know with with Blockbuster gone, and um, you know now it's just you know Netflix and you know like you said Walmart. You know, giving in that bin now that bin's a whole nother you know almost like another revenue cycle or another uh, opportunity. You know what I mean? And that's sort of. 
uh, and I know what you mean too about going to that bin. I've seen tons and tons of movies that I, from friends of mine that have made movies, and I've seen them in there. And they said, you know, that was actually good because people do actually buy from those from those big uh, barrels of of movies. Oh, 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 yeah, it really is. I mean, that's that's really that's the only place that people, you know, are are film watchers. The real film watchers go to that buggy because they want to watch something new and they want something that they could buy three of them instead of going to the theater and having to pay for one movie. Yeah, and uh, you know, and 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 yeah, and also Johnny, just to add, sort of, just to sort of reminisce, you know, when we talk about blockbuster, I remember going there too a, a lot, and I wanted to ask, you know, do you think that the blockbuster in any way, shape, or form is going to come back, like where you could actually just go to a store with with your friends and and actually just you know actually rent physical movies? You know what, I I, I wanted to open up one so bad, but every time I do, I do the the research, and you know, the problem is. You know, like my daughters right now, even though I'm in the business, I'll catch them watching a movie that's in theaters here right now because everything's being pirated. Everything's online. Everything's free now. I mean, you could really watch anything you want at any time for free. So why would you need to go out when you could just download it or, or, or get it online? And that's the problem is, is, is that, you know, I used to love going to the blockbuster with my kids and us going through every movie. I mean, that was fun. And now it's it's that here that time's gone and it's really hurting families and that's what movies are all about movies are all about bringing families together and enjoying an experience a dream you know and now it's just a matter of do they have time to watch one and that's where it's i really miss blockbuster and i think the film industry is really hurting because it's gone yeah, it's. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of piracy out there, and uh, and I also wonder too, as we talk about net neutrality, you know how how much that will play into it. Because if you're paying more for your internet, if you're paying more for certain features and and packages, uh, you know, going to those those torrent sites is not going to be as readily accessible as as it is now if if net neutrality uh, goes away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing you got to remember is that you own a blockbuster, you got to buy how many DVDs, where online you just need a copy of the movie and you don't have to make anything anymore. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's hard to compete. Yeah, and but it would be fun though. It, just in a best case scenario, oh, to, to to just own a blockbuster or or something, you know, like a almost like what Tarantino used to work at. You know, uh, what was it? Video archive. I totally agree. I am, and I think it can still work in in certain cities. I really do, because a lot of people don't want to go on the internet. You know, you just have to find the right the right town. Like LA is not the right town, but maybe somewhere in uh, in Spokane, Washington, or Bo- 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 Boise, Idaho, maybe the perfect spot for that. Yeah, you know, there's still a, a few blockbusters left, and they're all in Alaska. Really, I believe that. See, there, there you go. People don't want to be hibernating in their house; they want to get out. That's great. Love hearing that. Yeah, and also because you know the the internet there is slow as well. But the, and and you know you're right. I do want to get out, but the, you know they were able to go out and you know go to the blockbuster and you know they don't have to stream it or anything. They can just you know play it right from the Blu-ray or the DVD. And uh, when I when I did read that, you know I, I started saying you know what it makes sense you know <laughs> because you know you're you know I, I don't know how populated Alaska is and you know but it, I, I know it's it's not that populated. You know what I mean? It's you know when you think of Alaska, you think of uh, igloos and polar bears. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, you know, Johnny, as we, as we talk about, you know, getting back to, I'm sorry, now, now I started to get off topic again, but as we, as we go back to, <laughs> to talking about, you know, your, your career and, you know, and producing and everything, and you, and you said you had to prove that you could direct. And, um, I think that's very, very critical because I think that's, that happens to a lot of people. You know, I think that's, that's one of those, uh, you know, it, it's unique to everybody, but it's also universal at the same time because people want to see what you're capable of. They want to see what you can do. So, so you made the horror movie Delirium. And, and, you know, what, what was your experience, you know, just, just getting that made in terms of, hey, this is the movie where I'm going to show everybody what I can do? Well, the, the, the thing is that, you know, going back to the whole subject is that, you know, people don't want to be your first try. They just won't do it. No matter what script you have, you know, that's their career on the line. So that's why you have to be able to, to show and prove yourself. And that's what's tricky is that, you know, unless you have, you know, everyone doesn't look at your movie as a hundred thousand dollar movie or two hundred thousand dollar movie, they look at it as as a, as a movie. So you can't tell someone, well, this was only this. That's why I did this. They don't care. They only care. Did you make a quality movie? 
not caring about your budget or anything else. So now you're competing against that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Which really makes it hard. So when I did my movie, uh, the, the background that I had was the most important of learning every one's job. Cause once I did that, that allowed me to have a six man crew. That's all I shot my movie with. I didn't have any more than that. I knew what I needed to do. I prepped it. Prep is the most important thing where today's movies, they don't give you prep anymore. They give you four weeks to do a great movie. It needs to be prepped so great and having every backstop, every way of, 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 of a problem happens and ready to make change at any time. I don't think I've ever shot a script that we shot to the script itself. There's always a moment where you think, oh my God, what if I did this? And you have to be prepared for that. And you have to have a great team behind you. Remember, when you're directing, your number one thing that you should be doing at that moment is finding the right DP for you because he, you're not just making the movie. His eyes behind that thing, and he needs to move that camera. No director ever says, okay, now move that camera here or there, and that's great. But you got to find moments through the dialogue that gets you to that other character to not cause this delay of a camera sweep or a hard cut. And that's what's so important to hire is that finding that perfect soulmate that you could find in a DP that you guys think alike, you imagine each other like, and you guys could pick the shot perfectly and know that he, you have, he has free range to do whatever he wants to do to find that as well. And it's a partnership. And that's what everyone wants to say. Well, I did this movie. It's not I, I mean, every movie I've done, I've done with my DPs. I have two DPs. I trust wholeheartedly and I don't want to do a movie without them because we know each other. We know what we both like. And so I would suggest that to everyone and product know what your product is. I mean, know what is going to sell for the next four years. Don't, don't like found footage for me. When I made the found footage, I did the worst mistake because I created something that was hot at the moment. I didn't look into the future and that's what you need to do. If I could do a found footage, imagine how many other films are going to be found footage. So what can I do? What can I do to be different? Because at $200,000, the only thing that's going to make you stand out is if you have something that's different and new and fresh. And so that's what you really have to consider. Just don't go out and shoot a movie to show that you have, you know how to direct because no one's going to, the only time someone's going to tell you that you're a great director is when they love your movie, not love your shots, love your movie. Yeah. And that, that, that's a good point, Johnny. You know, and, and it's always about that, uh, that whole experience. Right. And, and you mentioned building a team. So, uh, you know, just about finding the right director of cinematography. So you know how to work together. I couldn't agree more. Uh, cause I, I've been a part of film sets like that. I've seen film sets like that where, you know, they want to hire somebody cause they got a nice camera or they want to hire somebody because they can talk the talk. But you know, when it comes time to, to when it becomes crunch time, it all sort of falls away. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and also you talked about just standing out from the pack. I think that is, you know, obviously it's more important than ever, you know, because right now it's a war of eyeballs and ears. Right. You know, it's a war of, you know, how can I get my movie seen and by by making it, you know, as unique as possible, not sounding like something is someone's already have, has already seen, which, you know, as we talk about found footage, that's why I think paranormal activity really found that niche, uh, even like the Blair Witch Project as well. The Blair Witch Project, they really were able to capitalize on the fact that the internet was so new. It was in an infancy stages, and you know, every, everyone really believed it. And the, the marketing was brilliant behind that because it made it seem like it was a real mystery. That and this movie was going to be, you know, you're watching a documentary, you know. And um, then with, with Paranormal Activity, it was a, you know, I think they did something similar, but they were able to just capitalize on this and, and the, he made it for even cheaper than, uh, for, than, uh, uh, Blair, Witch was, we, I think Orrin made it for what? 13,000. So it's like, you know, standing yeah. out, you know, just finding that niche and standing out is, is sort of key. And I think, you know, to, to do that rather than just, you know, reverse engineer it. I, th I think that the way to do that is, you know, find what movies you like and write a script that you'd like to see and and go from there and then sort of use your own what resources you have and then see how you can get it to sort of fit in that context so you're not looking going out and going well i need to you know go out and rent a, a yacht to blow up or something like that you know it's stuff you have you it's stuff that you have access to that you can use to make your movie well and the most important thing is like when i say find find something new and fresh you have to be willing to get ready to change your whole thought pattern of that because 
uh, it could fall on you could fall on your face by but but by doing that just as fast as you get successful. And by what I mean by that is that when I made my movie, I I knew I had to be different. So I wanted to make Stand by Me meets a horror movie. I wanted five characters, and I made these guys hang out with each other for for three months. I filmed them for three months, just hanging out until I knew they were best friends and wanted to hang out with each other. That's when I made the movie, and that's how I, I knew it was going to get that stand-by-me moment. It was more about character. And so I made this movie. It was had scares in it and it had these great moments. And when I made it, I turned around, and people, you know what, when they got that title horror on there and you're not delivering horror – my idea was great, and it looked great. It won some film festivals. But at the end of the day, when people buy it, they said, Johnny, we don't know how to categorize this movie. We don't even know how to sell it because it's not really horror, and it is. So we don't know what to do with it. So that's when I had to go back not only to change it out of sound footage, but I had to put more scares in it and, and cut out a lot of the dramatic parts where I built these characters. So a lot of stuff I truly believed in. I had to change because at the end of the day, it's not about what I think is perfect. It's what, you know, the audience and what the buyers and the distribution companies thinks is good. Yeah. And, 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 you know, again, as we talk about sort of selling, it's sort of like, you know, exactly what, what is everyone looking for? What is everyone buying? How do I get people to buy this movie? And, uh, you know, as we, as we talk about your, your second film that, you, you know, in, in the past couple of months, because again, in the pre-interview, we were talking about how the past couple of months have been actually, you know, really good for you. Uh, you know, not now delirium is coming out soon, which is the movie we were just talking about. And now you have a second film that's coming out uh, vengeance, a love story with Nicolas Cage. So, how did you go about, you know, uh, getting that film? Uh, uh, Johnny, did you put that together or was that something that was sort of pitched to you? Uh, well, no, it was a rape movie. They, um, uh, Patriot pictures asked me to produce it with Nick cage, who I've been friends with for 20 years. And I met him during gone in 16. We did a lot of movies after that together. And so, uh, I hear us producing it. The director, I didn't believe in, I didn't think he could pull it off for what I had. So, I basically had to fire him and Nick wanted to direct the movie himself. And I said, great. So since me and him had this great collaboration together, you know, he was so busy with his schedule and I would, you know, he called me up, he goes, Hey, can you start the shot list? Hey, you know, show me the locations I'll pick them and all this stuff. So we were working hand in hand. And then, you know, when, when, when the budget started getting tighter and tighter and tighter, you know, I had to cut days out of the movie and I told him, I, you know, you have to do this movie in 21 days. And he said, that's going to be very hard for me to do. Plus my schedule, uh, Johnny, I don't know if I could pull it off. Why don't, why don't you do it? And so everyone agreed. The, the producers and everyone said, yeah, John, Johnny should do it. He knows the movie the best. Then DGA stepped in and said, nope, Johnny can't do it because he's a producer on the film. And by D Directors Guild rules, you can't take over a movie for a director if you're the producer. So uh, we didn't have a director. We were supposed to start shooting in 48 hours. And eight hours before we started shooting, the DG, uh, my producer my financier got his attorneys off after the DGA and they finally agreed that I could direct the movie. So I didn't have that much warning that this was my movie and it was about rape and it was a sensitive story and it was very hard. So I just worked every, every night and every day I was off to prep this movie, you know, for every day. And it was a really hard, hard movie. Um, but I'm very proud of it. And Nick is very, very proud of it. And I think we, we pulled off something special. So when you mentioned prepping, even on your days off, Johnny, was that more like you're wearing your producer's hat? Like you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, is this location really locked? Uh, you know, what could go wrong? What else am I going to need? Was it stuff like that? No, I already, you know, I, I, I do that. I mean, like when I direct, like when I direct my last movie, Hangman and everything else, my, here my deal in my head is I'll go produce it for the first two weeks and I'll get everything handled with unions, everything else and, and make all the deals. But then I shut off from my producer, uh, at take that off and I go dry it into directing. And when I did this on vengeance, uh, it was about seeing, seeing the scenes. I, I usually have this weird thing that people make fun of me for it, but I, I could see things. I could see scenes in my head go around me. I could see cars pass by my body when I'm just standing there looking. So I like to close down a street and sit in the middle of the street and, and look at it and find the scene. And when I see that, then I could really picture where all my cameras could go and all that. And that's why, again, saying a great DP can visualize your story. Cause as I talk out loud, he's seeing what I'm seeing now too. So I had to make this movie. It was Nick's movie. And I had to try to find out how to make it mine. 
where I could believe it, you know, and shooting a rape scene is very sensitive and it's very hard to shoot a rape scene because people get uh, so disturbed by it that, that your movie could be ruined by a bad rape scene by making it too much. And so my rape scene, this movie, a little girl is watching her mom getting raped. And I thought the way I could do this to make it violent, because it needed to be violent because we needed to know why these guys should get what they get by the end of this movie. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That I said, what better than to show a rape scene through the eyes of this girl and what her visual is and what her pain is that she's feeling and very show very little of the rape itself. And that was different than you know Nick's version of it. And that's where I brought mine in. So that's what I do during prep to try to prepare what I feel the movie should look like. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a good point too, because you know, there, there are movies that have very, very violent rape scenes. Um, you know, like I spit on your grave, uh, irreversible, uh, straw dogs, just to name a few. And, you know, and again, you were mentioning, you know, doing things a little bit differently. And I think the way that you did it, um, it, it definitely sounds like, you know, it, obviously you're taking a very touchy subject, a very, you know, hard subject, but it, it it's a, it's a different way to sort of show this narrative rather than obviously like the graphic rape. Like I was just in the, in the three movies I just mentioned. Right. Absolutely. You're right. So, uh, so as you know, and you mentioned your, your third movie, by the way, and I, and I, uh, this is actually the movie that got us talking <laughs> through Mr. Kehoe was, uh, is, is hangman. Uh, again, I saw the poster and I said, wow, that looks awesome. And, uh, again, then Michael, uh, you know, just introduced us out of sheer luck or law of attraction, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, you know, as we talk about hangman, uh, I, I wanted to ask, you know, what is it like? Well, I wanted to ask actually, cause I want to ask what, what it's like working with Al Pacino, but I also want to ask, you know, too, Johnny, you know, how, how did you go about with this movie uh, and getting this made uh, uh, with Hangman? Did you, you know, was this another project that, that you were able to get made by yourself or was this pitched to you? Well, after I did uh, uh, the, uh, the Vengeance, the love story, Hangman was in the company of Patriot. And so they had a director already attached to it. And when Michael, uh, the financier, um, saw the movie Vengeance, he said, I, I want you to do Hangman. And so... Uh, I had to talk my way into Arnold Rifkin, who was the other producer, and he didn't really want me because he already had his director. So it was a struggle. And Michael said, well, I'm not going to finance it unless Johnny directs it. And he goes, well, 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 it's not our decision. It's, it's, it's Al Pacino's. So out here, Al Pacino, you know, didn't want to set up the meeting. He said, well, let me see what he did before. And he watched my Vengeance of Love story. He stopped uh, after the rape scene and called and said, I'd like to meet him because he was blown away by how I treated the rape scene. And he didn't watch the rest of the movie, which was funny. He just wanted to see something that really caught his eye. And so uh, the scariest day of my life is knowing I'm going to go meet the number one filmmaker of all time, the, the iconic Al Pacino. You know, how can I top this? And how am I going to talk to this man who's worked with Scorsese and someone and Coppola and let him think that I'm as good as them, you know? And, uh, there's one thing I have, and that's passion. I don't care about the money. I don't care about anything else but to try to make a film that is emotionally, that gets people emotionally involved. And that's what I am about all movies. I hear my favorite movies are like Miracle and Rocky and all those movies, not, you know, great action movies. And so going in there, I guess I, I gave Al uh, a pitch that he just said, your energy is so big and you believe in it so much, your words. And before we knew it, we were doing lines opposite of each other. And, and he would do, he goes, when, when I say this, and I'd, I'd come back with the line right after that. And, and he would come back to me and we started improving. And before I know it, I was going there every day and we were doing improv. And, and for, finally, he'd call me at two in the morning and go, okay, this person with two lines, Johnny, uh, the cop that's in the police station. I said, cop number two? And he goes, yeah. He goes, where were they born? I go, Minnesota. He goes, uh, is he from a single family? I said, no, their family's still married, but they're having problems. And it's, it was what we thought of what the characters would be. So when we got to the set, he was able to focus differently on each character, knowing what they went through in their lives, even if it was a one-line character. And that's what really made this movie so amazing is because it just became so real. And to work with Al Pacino, uh, probably any direct, any director in the world should be as lucky to have the moment that I had with this man. 
who's probably the most incredible actor and human being I've ever met. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to, that's one of the questions I want to ask about working with Al Pacino was, you know, it, it, I mean, obviously there had to be some kind of uh, almost like intimidation because, you know, Al Pacino has been in so many freaking movies that have just, you know, skyrocketed like, you know, Serpico and, and you know, uh, which where he played a detective also. And I mean, it, that's what I was going to ask is, you know, if he ever, if he ever just, you know, uh, not, not like coming with an ego, but just the fact that, you know, hey, look, it's Al Pacino. I mean, this man has just made so many awesome movies. And it's like, you know, how do you direct somebody like that who's worked with Scorsese and Coppola and stuff like that, you know? It's just without being like, well, uh, you know I, you know what I mean? And so and so that's good, Johnny. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you, you were able to sort of find that that core. And again, you, you know, you're passionate, you know what you're doing. And, you know, I, so, and I want to ask you, too, as you're sort of going back and forth, forth with him, and he asked, you know, where was this character born? You know, that's just you ad-libbing. I mean, you know, what would have happened, just as a what if, like, if you would have said, Al, I don't know? Well, the thing is that I, I, I prepared myself so well that I, I knew everything that I needed. I read that script 18 times before I met with Al. And I was involved with everyone. I knew where they were in the scene. I, I already pictured the set. I already pictured who they were, how they carried their shoulders, how they walked, and everything else. So, I, I mean, the great part about Hangman is that every role drove the story. So it was easy to know what emotions these people felt. It's like in my opening scene when we find the first hanging, you know, everyone said, well, Johnny, this girl's so weak. You know, why? So why isn't she supposed to be a cop? I said, yeah, she's a beat cop working two in the morning shift and, and, you know, and, and she works a schoolyard. And so it's to me that that character needed to be a little bit weaker. So my lead character Rooney could come into this movie and be strong and not be compared to another cop. And so it was stuff like that that made me realize that when I met Al, that I already thought this stuff out and I already pretty much knew I didn't know the backstory so much, which I learned a lot of, but I pictured this girl was wounded somehow and she was weak. And so what would that lead to? And that led to what her family life would be. And so Al brought it more out in me as well, you know, but we did a lot of rewrites from the, from, from the prep. It was an everyday meeting, everyday talk while I prepped the movie. So it was really quite interesting. And he wouldn't allow stuff that he felt that the audience would stop it. As a matter of fact, he sat in the editing room with me probably seven days, didn't say a word, just hung out with me to watch, see how we were doing this. And, you know, at the end of the movie, I told him out, I know you thought we made seven, but it's a character piece about four, four people struggling with their lives to find out how they could help each other. And that's what the, the movie kind of is. Again, I'm all about relationships and movies and uh, I know that everyone's going to go see it probably is going to go into, Oh my God, this is another seven. Cause that's what the trailer looks like. And it is, it's like a seven, but it's more about uh, having a relationship with, with these actors more than the normal seven kind of movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I have the, uh, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I actually, uh, I actually ordered it on voodoo and it's out early on nice. Voodoo right now. So I'm actually going to watch it not tonight, uh, but tomorrow. Um, so I can't wait. And I saw it was up there and I said, Oh, I said, I should, I, I actually ordered. It. I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to have Johnny on the podcast. And I thought I was going to have time to watch it, but I, I, I didn't. Uh, but I, I made sure to order it. And by the way, everyone, I'm going to link to that in the show notes, uh, hangman on voodoo. It's actually out before it's in theaters or the same time it's in theaters. Yes. And uh, which I think, by the way, Johnny, I think that's a really good idea for, for a lot of films in general. Um, because it, it sort of gives you, uh, you know, so a different form of access, you know, in case, you know, the movie, uh, isn't playing around you or if you know, there's not a theater you like around you. I've always said this is a really good idea um, that I, you know what I mean? As we talk again about VOD and everything else, I, I always think that's a good idea for, for a lot of, uh, of films to do that is, is it to come out either at the same time uh, it's in theaters or even or, or shortly then after, you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. I totally agree with you. And uh, so, so Johnny, you know, as we as we sort of, you know, uh, have been talking for about forty five minutes, you know, is there anything oh in cl closing that you want to talk about, Johnny, or, or anything that we can get a chance to discuss? You know, half the reason why I do these these interviews and all that is because again, I care about movies, and the worst thing about this this business is failure and how low it can really bring you and how easy it is to quit this business. And there's so many people that are more passionate about films than probably anything in this world. And 
Uh, I just have to tell everyone is that, you know, knowledge is everything. And the key thing you got to be is the smartest guy in the room, learn more than the guy that you're meeting and learn everything you can about uh, him, him as well. I mean, no, have the knowledge of knowing his work and how it compares to your work, but people, you know, the ego gets really big in this industry and that is what destroys people. Unfortunately, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I just say knowledge is everything and learn as much as you can before you are ready to go out there. You get one chance at this. Don't, don't blow it just because you get that opportunity. Be, be ready for your opportunity. You know, Johnny, that is, that is absolutely great advice. Uh, you know, always be ready and always learn as much as you possibly can. And uh, Johnny, where can people find you out online? Uh, well, I'm at um, uh, the, the, the net. Uh, martinifilms.net that is uh, I have a, w- a website that explains my story and my whole career from stunts to acting to producing um, I'm going to start re- opening up seminars of how to raise money and, and to help people in Georgia all my crew members and all that that want to become better filmmakers and even more filmmakers so I'm going to start putting on seminars how to go about uh, putting together films and all that hopefully I'll have that recorded and I do have an upcoming movie with our friend Michael Kehoe, which I got to tell you, I'm very, very proud of. And I cannot wait to get started on this thing. And the movie's called Judge Not. I think that is more like the seven that, that everyone wants to see. It's really dark and gritty. And that's kind of like my genre that I want to go with, like Dave, Dave, David Fincher did. That's really, really cool. And, and you and Mr. Kehoe together, that's, uh, that's going to be interesting because, you know, again, because Kehoe knows everybody and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it was, yeah, it, absolutely. I'm very excited. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, Johnny, when you, when you are doing those seminars, let me know, uh, and I will add them to the show notes as well. I'll update them. Uh, you know, everybody, everything that Johnny and I talked about on the show in this episode will be on the show notes at DaveBullis.com. Twitter. It's at Dave underscore bullis johnny martin i want to say thank you so much for coming on thank you very much dave very nice meeting you all i want to thank dave so much for doing such a great job on this episode if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode head over to the show notes at indiefilmmuscle.com forward slash 712 if you haven't already please head over to filmmakingpodcast.com subscribe and leave a good review for the show It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.